Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome to another OUinsider.com podcast. I'm RJ Young. I'm joined by OUI staff writer Colin Kennedy. Colin, what's going on, man? Oh, you know, lots been going on. I've been moving. So as we know, that's always a delight. But right now, I'm just excited to talk sports. I hate that. I I had to do it last year uh, with my place now. So I am I am sympathetic to you, sir. It sucks. And I, I had movers. <laughs> Yeah, right now I'm just living in the middle of a tornado and bouncing over different furniture. But, hey, you know, you adjust with the time. So let's dig into what we got because I think we got some interesting stuff to talk about. And it's been a while. I'm excited about it. Yeah, man. Well, so, like, earlier this week you found time to write about Isaiah Coe and what he's thinking. As his his uh, commitment date is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, June 4th? I believe it's either June 4th or June 6th. Okay. Because um, I know around that timeline, so early June. Yeah. So Leary was the other we were watching for, and then he announced earlier this week that he is going to delay his commitment indefinitely. I think that's in response to the dead period being extended to July thirty first. Uh, up until Wednesday, we all thought it would be done on June thirtieth, and that's not the case. So, I mean, in talking about the junior college kids in particular, who are massive on visits right I think even more so than some of the kids coming out of high school uh what's your sense of Isaiah Coe uh, as a player and how does he feel about how he's being recruited right now yeah Isaiah Coe to me is definitely a guy that Oklahoma has to be pursuing at this stage and I know we'll get into a little bit more about why but for me when I look at him as a player I think he's an incredibly athletic individual I think he's great at shedding blocks with something you definitely want to emphasize in a one-gap scheme, which Alex Grinch runs. I think he's also a guy that's incredibly intuitive. He's smart. He's a well-versed individual, and he's a guy that really just goes 100% every snap. And that's all that you can really ask for, especially out of a defensive tackle position, someone who's constantly grinding in those trenches and not always getting the credit that he deserves. So I think Isaiah Coe, he's a player who obviously stands out on film, but that he's also going to stand out when you talk about Sooner Times. Interestingly enough, he was a teammate of Perrion Winfrey's at Iowa Western Community College, and he's also friends with Kendall Pettis, who will be a future superstar for OU baseball. He's a Chicago, Illinois product and outfielder, and the two knew each other when they were both in the Chicago area. So you have the personal connections. You have the qualifications that make him an Oklahoma caliber football player. But then I also wonder, okay, where does he fit in the grand scheme of these things? Because as we know, we've talked about it, Oklahoma's in on a number of different defensive line prospects. So then you wonder, will the numbers fit him? Mm-hmm. I would say that if Oklahoma is the way he's leaning and you're able to take him, take him. But I'm also under the impression that if you can take five or six defensive linemen, especially towards the interior, you do so. Because I'm a firm believer that you win the battles in the trenches and that great teams have deep defensive line rotations. So as a result... If I had to give you a guess, I think that it's probably Oklahoma, Ole Miss towards the top. Missouri's definitely fighting. I believe his top five was Oklahoma, Missouri, Ole Miss, South Carolina, and Illinois. And so as a result, I would say that Oklahoma, Ole Miss, 
probably Mizzou. Those are the top tier schools of that top five. And I think Oklahoma's in great standing. No, and you make a good point about interior linemen versus defensive linemen because uh, presently Oklahoma does not have a defensive tackle in the boat, right? The closest thing you get to that is probably Ethan Downs, and we all expect him to be a Ronnie Perkins-style strong side defensive end with Clayton Smith perhaps playing that edge position. It brings into question a thing that I brought up during the 2019 cycle, which is, yo, man, so, uh, not everybody gets to play end, right? Uh, somebody's going to have to blow up into a defensive lineman, and this was true before Grinch brought in a one-gap scheme. I was thinking this, but with Marcus Hicks, I believe, is a, is a star waiting to be born. He didn't play at all last year, but this year I expect to see him a lot more. Uh, a dude that I sincerely believe is more athletic than Jalen Redman and more technically sound than Leron Stokes, if that gives you uh, any idea of what I think about his upside. But in looking at who Oklahoma can bring in at the de- on the defensive line right now, we're talking about perhaps Marcus Burris, right? Uh, Isaiah Coe, who you mentioned, and uh, I'm forgetting one in particular. Thank you, thank you. Uh, like two of those guys are are ends. One, of them, I think they're both weak side defensive ends, or is Marcus the strong side? I believe Burst is a strong side end. Okay. Currently. Okay. So they're so they're both strong side ends. Do they project as defensive tackles or do they project as ends? Because I think that's you know the 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 thing that Oklahoma fans love to yell is where's the defensive tackle talent, right? And in Co, you'd be getting a third consecutive junior college defensive tackle uh, to follow Perion Winfrey and Josh Ellison, and knowing what this this team needs to be and knowing that 295 is about as big as these kids are going to be allowed to get in Grinch's scheme finding those those guys I think is going to be even more difficult but also you know this conceit about where they come from right like all of a sudden a kid that comes out of Iowa Western is somehow not as good as a kid that to pick on your alma mater comes out of Flower Mound Marcus Mm -hmm. it's a fascinating discussion and I think as you kind of mentioned, this is where Oklahoma's defensive tackle recruiting really has to take some turns. And it's a take that I've had that no matter what you're going to do, it's not exactly what it has to be right now. So the way I kind of phrase it, Alice Grinch is recruiting to his system. Mm. And he has to find guys that are going to fit not only in the future, but in the now. And as a result, when you're transitioning, you're going to have to sort of adjust to the present times. And as a result, Alex Grinch has had to take those JUCO defensive linemen. He's had to take some other JUCO players. But he can build up a reputation to eventually land those high-profile prep players that play defensive tackle or corner. So as a result, for me, I think we talk about, okay, Marcus Burris, Kelvin Gilliam, and Isaiah Coe. Isaiah Coe, to me, is the plug-and-play defensive tackle. But I also think Gilliam and Burris, especially because I've seen one of the two play in person, they both project as defensive linemen. I, I know that after seeing Burris play and Gilliam speaking to him, both would be able to make that transition to defensive tackle, which is the key thing to mention. But as a result, I think a lot of Oklahoma fans sometimes get up in arms because they see, okay, Oklahoma goes and gets the top two JUCO defensive tackles of 2019. They get the top JUCO safety, and he there's a chance that he may play corner in the fall in Justin Harrington. But they, they get upset because, okay, it's great to land top-tier JUCO talent, but what about top-tier recruiting talent out of the high school ranks because that's what really, quote-unquote, gets the job done. Well, as a result, 
Grinch is trying to do what he can to eventually get there, where he's in the arena of landing a top 10, five-star defensive lineman or corner. But the matter of fact here is he's just not there right now. And in order to get there, you have to find ways to build up what you're trying to accomplish. And in my opinion, it's better to go get guys who are experienced, who have a little bit more know-how, and maybe have a little bit better understanding of what the collegiate ranks ask of you than it is to just bet all your horses on some guys who may not necessarily be interested and see in the end of it all that you land a five-star guy. So as a result, I think Isaiah Coe, if they're able to take him, they take him. I think if they can go get even more Juco talent, as we know they're in on guys like Kyrie Jackson, a corner, Dejon Warren, another cornerback. If they can get those guys and by all means go get them, it's just, Oklahoma fans are going to have to be patient right now because right now top-tier JUCO talent means just as much as landing some very solid high school talent. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. No, yeah, I think you're 100% correct there. And I, I think that there's pros and cons to both, right? I mean, Laron Stokes is the defensive newcomer of the year last year. And I think that somehow gets missed in this discussion because he comes out of, I mean, I, I'm very proud of Laron Stokes because he's a Tulsa grown kid and he's a junior college grown kid in Oklahoma coming out of NOAA, which I think makes him the first homeschooled high school kid to earn a scholarship to play football at Oklahoma and then goes to NEO and shows out and shows up to to Oklahoma and to play in a scheme he wasn't recruited to play in or, or not even that, not even know what the scheme was going to be, right? And announces himself alongside Neville Gallimore, Dylan Fomital, and Marquise Overton, which you know is not a, it's not a, it's not an easy group to break into, right? And you're looking at this this defensive line now. I see a, a kid that played more basketball than he's played football. I see a junior college kid that needed to be developed into a tackle that can play at either one of those positions, either uh, that three technique or that that one technique. And behind them, I see an unproven kid in perhaps Marcus. Uh, not Marcus Stripling, Marcus Hicks. Stripling's going to play in. And behind him, you know, Troy James left. We're still waiting on a couple of these kids to to really grow up and do something. I just, it's not a hodgepodge, but I think Grinch deserves credit for developing what was there and knowing what he wants to bring in because we can't argue with the turnaround. Is it a top 10 defense? No. Is it a kind of defense that can win a college football playoff national championship? We saw what it was last year, but I think it's unfair to have these conversations about where the kids come from and have more conversations about what they turn out to be once they're at Oklahoma. I mean, I guess a, a, a frequent whipping boy on this end would be, you know, uh, Brendan Radley-Hiles has tremendous pedigree, right? Uh, between, mm-hmm. between Calabasas and IMG and now here as a five-star defensive back that was the dude that was supposed to show out and we can make a great argument both LaRon Stokes and Jalen Redmond outplayed him last year you know along with a couple of other kids that you know just 
slotted into a position that fit them. I still, I'm still riding for Buki being a cornerback, and I'm probably going to take that one to my grave because he's probably never going to get an opportunity to play cornerback. But uh, to, to take that conversation a little bit further, Oklahoma has done a tremendous job of recruiting junior college dudes across the defense for the last couple of years. We're still waiting on Justin Harrington to get to campus and let alone what he's going to be and what, what could end up looking like over there. But I think the only position where they haven't had to do that is a uh, linebacker, right? Yeah. I mean, they, that's probably the one position group that they haven't really had to pursue any sort of Juco talent. And I know that we all have our different perceptions of linebacker recruiting in the university of Oklahoma, but it's kind of outstanding that they haven't had to go the Juco route at this mm-hmm. stage. And I would agree with that. I also think that when we're looking at the the rankings and we're looking at the sheer number of recruits out there, there aren't very many defensive tackles and there aren't very many six foot two, six foot three corners and safeties for that matter, right? There's there's gonna be a few other guys that you could slot in inside linebacker that could play safety and can play edge. I mean, I guess Kenneth Murray Jr. and Deshaun White are both glaring examples of this because Murray was brought in as an edge player moved the inside, and then thrived playing inside and then playing edge on third down last year. Deshaun White was a safety in high school who was recruited as an outside linebacker who slotted to inside almost immediately once he got to Oklahoma. So I think there's more versatility to be found at the linebacker uh, level in high school than there is on any other at any other position in, well, high school, especially when you try to run the scheme that Grinch runs, which is skinny and fast up front yeah. and, and long and fast on the back end. He's, he's basically inversed what we would normally call traditional football defense. And it's working, but it's also just, it's just hard, right? And because it's hard, you're going to flip over rocks and you're going to go find kids that I would or we would probably label as projects. Like Jordan Mooks, I think, fits this billing. A kid that's played more basketball than football, but is nearly six foot four. You know, uh, with tremendous range and tremendous feet, uh, Justin Harrington's still growing at six foot three to fifteen. You know, it's just like you if you if you think you can coach him up and you want to coach him up, then you just got to go get what's there. I kind of think about it in the way that we think about seven footers in the NBA, because we're like, man, how does a dude get to the NBA and not be able to have the fundamentals of basketball down? That's well, because he never played. They just kind of go into find him. As a matter of fact, I read this stat in uh, the Sports Genes, David Epstein. One in 12 seven-footers on the face of the planet play in the NBA. Think about that. Just, just for a second, you know. One, one, in, one in 12 seven-foot people walking around, regardless of gender, play in the NBA. So when you find one, you just go get him and, and hope to teach him something. And sometimes you, you end up with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Sometimes you end up with Darko Milicic. You know, it's just, and I think that's what Grinch is deciding to do with his defensive recruiting. Yeah, and to further your point about the linebacker thing, you also have to understand, and it's always been something that's fascinated me, the way that Alex Grinch is going to have to recruit to the system will ask a lot more various angles. So as a result, I mean, we talk about the inside linebacker. There's more position versatility, as you mentioned, but there's also fewer candidates to go and find. I mean, you're really playing, as we saw last season, Alex Grinch really only utilized two, three, four inside linebackers at most. It was really that three-man rotation of K-9, Deshaun White, and Caleb Kelly that got the job done down the stretch. But then you're also talking about a scheme that's really asking you to find probably four defensive tackles. 
that can start games for you when you think about how he used Fama to how he used Q Overton, how he used Neville Gallimore, Jalen Redmond. And then you're also wondering, okay, not only does he have to have five starting caliber defensive backs, but he has to find guys that can rotate and still provide effective minutes. So as a result, I mean, these recruiting classes are going to have to look a lot different than maybe Oklahoma fans are used to, especially when you look at other teams and how they're finding their various prospects, because there are teams out there that are going to go take the, the, the five, nine corner. But right now, I mean, Alex Grinch has set in stone what he's looking for. And so as a result, it's going to look a little bit different when you think about the junior college players that are going to have to come in the position versatility guys that you're mentioning, some of the projects, that will have to be ready to be developed, maybe redshirt a season. It's just something that has to be built. And I think this is where you have to reiterate the concept of patience for Sooner fans because, I mean, what Alex Grinch was able to accomplish last season was nothing short of a miracle. Let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, the guy took him from, what, outside the 120s to inside the top 25, top 30, and now he has a projectable defense that could be inside the top 20. We'll see what happens. I think they have a favorable schedule to accomplish that, but at the same time, I mean, what he's already done is incredible. And in order to get where Oklahoma fans want him to get to, there's still some project to be accomplished. So as a result, it's something that's going to have to be a little bit flexible. I know that he's molded this specific recruiting approach and he wants to continuously accomplish that and not really bend. But if that's going to be his pace, then he's going to have to understand and Oklahoma fans will have to understand with him that, his recruiting model may look a little bit different than other defensive coordinators across the country. I want to hit on this thing about Alex Grinch and what he was able to do in 2019 because I, I really think you can you can skew the data however you want to because that was the kind of season that they played, not because that's what I'm trying to do. But, you know, you're holding UCLA to 14 points. It's not a good football team, right? You're holding Texas Tech to 16 points. It's not a good football team. You're holding Kansas to 20 points. It's not a good football team. West Virginia to 14. It's a bad football team. You come up against some teams that can play, right? Houston puts up 31. Uh, you, you come up against a team that can play in Texas. We, we'll, we can talk about that last seven points that they scored and at 34-27, but we would call that a one-sided affair for the defense, I think, for Oklahoma. The Kansas State game is glaring, right? 48 points from, from that team. And the way that they're constructed should never happen. And then Iowa State dropped 40 the next week, right? Uh, Baylor scores 31, but you basically hold them scoreless for the most part in the second half. So I think we would count that as a win, even as the score says 31 points. Oklahoma State, I think we would count as a win. You held Chuba Hubbard to just over 100 in a year where he's rushing for more than 2,000. Texas Christian 24 would count that as a win. Baylor to 23, that was an absolutely outstanding game. And then there's the LSU game where he gave up 63. So, I mean... It's it for football people. I think we would say sure, absolutely. Uh, Alex Grinch did a, a great job considering most of the kids, not most. Oh yeah, most of the kids on that defense aren't his. Like I want to say, like David Uguaybu is the only one that he actually recruited and signed that played on that defense, and everybody else is just trying to learn as they go and, along with this new staff. And I think when you put it in perspective, and you put it, what did they do and how did they play? You can really tie it up in, did the defensive line play well and did the safeties play well? And that's his calling card, right? And the thing that he would grade us on and we would, we would think of because he grades himself on this is, where were the takeaways? 
You know, I think that would be the one thing that I think we could all knock him for if we wanted to. He didn't achieve his own takeaway number. He didn't even get close. You know, and and what had what happens if they do get close? How much better are they if they get to those 24 takeaways that equal nine wins, regardless of what the offense does? Is that is that out of line or is just? No, I, 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 that's where I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly in saying, look, what Alex Grinch accomplished a season ago was incredible, but it's also leaving work to be done. I mean, we can talk about the turnover numbers, the tackles for a loss. I think some of the run defense statistics, obviously they rank towards the top in the Big 12 in terms of general, but if you really dive into the specifics of their run defense, there were some things that could certainly be fixed, and I think some of that has to do with the adjusting to the scheme, the lighter boxes, I mean, things of that nature. So. That, that's where you're talking about exactly the problem that's still ahead of Alex Grinch and this defensive staff, not only in terms of on-field play, but in recruiting. Yes, what they did was remarkable, and they took a unit that was in dire needs of a flip, and they accomplished that. They, they got them to heights that maybe those players didn't even necessarily expect out of themselves. But that doesn't mean that the, the work is over. That, that still means that, okay, they've got – X number of spots to climb up until they're considered a top tier defense, not only in the eyes of the college football landscape, but of the recruits who are eventually joining them. So yeah, it's fair to be somewhat critical of Grinch and that crew right now, because as we said, there were still things left on the table that they wanted to grab. But even then you have to understand that now that Grinch is able to reach these certain statistics, now that he's able to get some of these top tier Juco players, Whereas before him, it may not be the case either way. And we can talk about the scores or whatever, but bottom line here, you never know how a game goes. Some of those games, they probably drop before he gets there. Not be just because of his schemes, but how he was able to lead that group and how Roy Manning, Brian Odom, and the rest of that squad was able to get these guys to rally together in times of adversity. So the progress is being made. But right now, we also have to understand that, okay, just because he's accomplishing things and he's setting goals and he's marking a few off, there are still things left to be checked away. And once those are able to be checked away, that's when I think Sooner fans will finally be pleased, not only in terms of on-field statistics and results, but also recruiting rankings, recruiting class, and things of that nature. So as a result, I mean, I I can't say enough about what Grinch did, but I think he would be one of the first people to admit, yes, we, we got the right direction, but there's still a ways to go. And so it's going to be very fun to follow what comes next season and in the season moving forward. You hit on the recruiting rankings, and I want to get into that a little bit because I, I took some time to try to figure out what the anatomy of a number five ranked recruiting class might look like in 2021 for Oklahoma in particular, but just in general as well, because I have been skeptical about whether or not OU can put together a top five recruiting class. And frankly, the junior college uh, additions don't really help, right? As a matter of fact, if you put the junior college dudes into the calculator, they don't even come up. They don't show. So like the three stars that Isaiah Coe might add don't show up in the rankings calculator because he's not necessarily a member of the 2021 class in the same way that Mario Williams is, for for instance. And I'm looking to get some more uh, clarity on that from uh, the rankings council in 247, just figure out how all that stuff works because obviously junior college kids – they count toward the scholarship total, so they should count toward the calculator. But that aside, when I was playing with the numbers, and Oklahoma has seven commits in the boat right now, four four-stars, you need about 14 blue chippers. That's four or five-star kids, and you need at least two of them to be five-star talents. 
right? That's the, that is the basic understanding and anatomy of your number five ranked classes. Uh, mm-hmm. Michigan in 2017, I believe, had 30 commits and 19 of them were uh, four stars, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Ole, Ole Miss in 2016 had 26 commits and then I believe 16 of them were uh, blue chippers. And then Alabama had what, what what's a down year for them, just 22 in the boat, finished number five, right, with I believe like uh, 15 blue chippers. And then that, 20, that 2019 year where Oklahoma finished six to LSU, they have 24 commits to LSU's 25. And they have 16 blue chips to LSU's 14. So add another blue chip to that class, and we can conceivably believe that Oklahoma finishes – number five and I prefer to think of it that way rather than take Brew McCoy away from Texas because I would rather just jump up and beat somebody rather than have to worry about them losing someone because I'm just not built that way uh and then this 2020 class Ohio State finishes with a really great class and a score of 295 plus uh which is phenomenal for number five because the average that you need to hit is about about 289.36 right for your team score and finishing at 295 I think we all agree is pretty good. So Oklahoma this year would need to add 10 blue, ten more blue chippers to this class, and two of them need to be five stars. And assuming Emeka Egbuka is a lean to, to Ohio State, that means you need to sew up Kamara Wheaton and Caleb Williams just to have a shot at finishing number five. So I wanted to start the conversation there. What would you place the odds on both of those dudes joining up in this class? And that's before you even begin to think about L.J. Johnson or uh, – Christian Leary, or any of these other high-value four-stars that you really want to join the OU class? Yeah, I I think you you obviously have to start there, and I think you don't have to go much further than the 24-7 sports crystal ball predictions to really determine the direction of Caleb Williams right now in Oklahoma. 100%. I I don't think anyone's going to kid themselves here. OU is in great position to land Caleb Williams, so then it really becomes the Kamar Wheaton thing. And as we know, He's a, he's a Texas kid. He's in that DFW kind of area. Those are kind of my stomping grounds. And from what I can gather, I think Oklahoma is in a really good position. I think that SMU is going to keep in this race because SMU has done an outstanding job of hiring young, energetic, enthusiastic, and passionate coaches who have incredibly strong ties to the Metroplex. And as a result, I think they're going to be able to recruit with the big boys for some years as long as they can keep that staff intact. So then you kind of wonder, maybe Wheaton's the more fringe of the two, but I would call Oklahoma the leader for Kamar Wheaton. Hmm. So when you talk about the five stars and who they have to bring into the class to get to that number five spot that you're mentioning, I'm giving them on those two five stars alone a very solid opportunity to land them. And I will say this, if Caleb Williams, that domino falls and that comes before Kamar Wheaton's decision – I would be led to believe that puts them in even further a strong position with Wheaton if they're able to land that five-star quarterback and sell him on the idea of joining another superstar in the backfield. I like where your head's at. Um, I guess what I'm saying is I need to see it first. And, and yeah, I got one of those Crystal Ball predictions in for one of those guys. Um, but uh, pff, I, I, I got to see it. Because even with Spencer Rattler, Theo Weiss, and Jaden Hazelwood in the boat, they still – we're just clawing to get to number five. So uh, I say that you need those two five stars as a jumping off point because it's absolutely true. And if you're going to be clear about it, you probably need to have three because even with three, 
Oklahoma still fell short in that sixth spot, even, you know, adding or not adding that mm-hmm. that uh, other dude to the class. The The thing that I also I find interesting about this. All right, so follow me here because I'm, you know, basically going to do a segment right quick, uh, which is I did some looking at Clemson because what do people tell us about Clemson? They tell us that they play in a soft ACC, right? Uh, and Clemson has won two national championships in the past five years, and yet we're going to blame the ACC for that. We're like, no, man, they, they face the same competition Oklahoma faces in the playoff. They just beat people. And then I look at this thing where Clemson – has lost just two games in conference in the last five years. Oklahoma has lost two games in conference in each of the past two years with Riley as the head coach. Now, we could talk about Lincoln Riley and, and winning five straight Big 12 championships, just like Clemson's won five straight Big 12 championships. And yet in the Riley era, we get at least three, not at least, we get three. Like, no, we get four. Yeah, we get four losses. Do I have to, Let me think. We have 2017 Iowa State. We have 2018 Texas. Just the four. Okay. And then we have 2019 Kansas State. Because Iowa State, you escape. Uh, Baylor, you get a dramatic come from behind victory. And the rest weren't really that close. All right, cool. I look at Riley and I look at, at how the points are scored as well. And, I mean, we're talking about the first year that he, he was there. I think they scored 48, 48.4 points per game. And then 45.1, and then 43.9, and then 43.5, and then 42.1, right? So they're averaging about 44 points per game. And they've shown Down that— here. Right, right. This is the worst year is 42 points per game. But it's still not good enough to get you a win in the playoff. And if you want to blame the Big 12 Conference for beating up on you, that's a bad look because you're telling me that the Big 12 Conference is softer than the ACC Conference with that math. Because if the Big 12 Conference is harder to play through, then Oklahoma should win the college football playoff games that they were in, and Clemson should lose them. Like, this should be the inverse. Clemson should be over, and Oklahoma should have two national championships in the last four years. But that's not what's occurred. What's occurred is Clemson rolls through the ACC and then gets wins in the college football playoff and in a national championship game. And let's not forget the 2018 team. Alabama stumped a mud hole in Oklahoma, especially in that first corner when they're down 28-0 to and it's not a game. And Clemson rolled that Alabama team up, destroyed them, right? And, and that's with a true freshman at quarterback. That's their Spencer Rattler. So, like, there's a difference between being really, really good and being great and dominant. And I feel like because I put my eyes on Oklahoma – as much as I put my eyes on anything college football related, period, I'm always going to have this thing in my ear where I'm like, I'm not going to ignore what I see, right? Because like, I'm, I'm not trying to be harder on Oklahoma. I'm just trying to call it the way that it is as opposed to the way that I wish it to be because we're talking about 20 years since, since it won, last won a national championship. I was 13, man. Like, I'm, I'm grown. I'm, I'm Jesus' age in July. Like, am I wrong here or am I being too hard on this? I mean, what was I, four? <laughs> so, this is probably some justification behind what you're saying. So, okay, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think you did a really good job of weighing it all out. But, okay, my thing is I'm terrified to compare Oklahoma and Clemson okay. because, look, I think you bring up a valid point. Why is Clemson playing in what we perceive as a soft conference 
whereas Oklahoma is playing in what we might perceive as a soft conference, and yet one team is having more success than the other. My take is, okay, you put Clemson in a lot of different conferences, soft or strong, and they're still going to be one of the most dominant football programs in America because of what Davo Swinney and that staff has been able to accomplish. I kind of put Clemson as an exception in the world of college football, but then I also think you have to bring up, okay, Oklahoma is making the college football playoff, and they have the same number of wins as what, uh, Washington, Michigan State? I mean, it, it's – to me, that's where you really have to be concerned. Why is a blue blood program like the Oklahoma Sooners staying on the same level of success as some of the other outlier programs that sneak into the college football playoff? Because that's really the comparison to make is why is a program like OU being led by one of the most competent and smart coaches in America, Lincoln Riley, ending up on the same level as some of these squads that can barely see the light of day when it comes to the committee? I mean – I think in order for that to change, that kind of then goes back to our whole discussion of recruiting. I mean, you brought up the fact that JUCO guys and transfers don't really factor in. But I also think that, okay, JUCO guys and transfers definitely have an impact on your squad. And so as a result, that's the niche to be building yourself in right now when you're trying to reach the level of a Clemson or Ohio State or Alabama. Because bottom line is Oklahoma's not there right now, but they're definitely going to have to find a way to separate themselves from some of those squads that sneak into the CFP unless they want to join that company. Mm. It's difficult to really justify the struggle that Oklahoma has seen in the college football playoff. And again, it's something that I don't think we can really compare to other programs. But at the end of the day, I think there does have to be a level of accountability held. And I think that the fan base has done a great job of that. I think the media realm has done a great job of that. I, I would argue that the coaches and players have done a phenomenal job of holding themselves accountable. I mean, we've heard time and again the stories or, or the quotes from Oklahoma coaches and players, we're not playing well enough in the CFP. We are not playing to the level of Clemson or Alabama. We definitely messed up or we have to find ways to improve. I think it goes into, okay, you got to land those top-tier recruiting classes, yes. But I also would argue that Oklahoma has finally been able to sort of shred what's held them back. And I would argue that in the past, maybe that was some coaching staff changes that needed to be made or, or, or some leadership changes, trusting guys earlier in their careers. And as a result, I would say Oklahoma's closer than maybe a lot might expect. I also know that people are arguing to keep them out of the college ball playoff because they're struggling so often when they make it. But I think until we see something – that, that allows us to say, okay, we can buy this Lincoln-Riley stock, we can buy this home stock, because eventually that national championship is going to be won. I think that there has to be some sort of discussion as to why it's not taking place. Because, again, I mean, we were both incredibly young the last time Oklahoma won a national title, but we've also endured all of those losses fairly recently. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understand the frustration behind all of this. I also think it's where I would reiterate the concept of patience. Because the bottom line here is, yes, Oklahoma is a blue blood, and it is expected to uphold the standard of a Clemson or Alabama, but it's also going through a relatively new transition, not only a defensive coordinator, but Lincoln Riley hasn't necessarily been an established veteran so far. And I think there are still some things to be learned, and I think you saw that literally firsthand with the squib kick. So it's a tough decision, and it's a tough discussion to have, but I think it's one that needs to be had, and I think it's being had inside closed doors and so 
am I betting on the fact that Oklahoma is going to be able to get over the hump and, and win that national championship and have that top five recruiting class that we're talking about? Absolutely. But I, I think I'm a little bit more encouraged than others at this stage that even though it doesn't look like that's on the horizon in the immediate sense, it's definitely there because the Sooners are taking necessary steps to eventually reach that goal, even though in the now it doesn't look so pretty, but eventually it will pay off in my opinion. Allow me to walk out the door with a thing that was hit over my head by a uh, a, a person I dearly admire, longtime Sooner fan, born in the 1950s. He said, Oklahoma, uh, or Oklahoma, RJ, I feel bad for you and your Sooners. I said, why? Because Barry won a national championship in his first three years. Bob won a national championship in his first three years. Lincoln didn't get it done. And it's real hard to win another one uh, when you haven't won the first one. And I said, damn it. <laughs> it's like I, I could have gone the rest of my life without knowing that. Uh, and <laughs> I still hold a grudge over that 2017 season. I still do. Uh, Colin Kennedy, he's awesome. Give him a follow on Twitter at ckennedy247. That's ckennedy247. Uh, I have deleted my Twitter account. Uh, Colin, man, thanks so much. Always fun, man. Let's do it again soon. Right on, brother.